We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go, episode 155 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, September 29th, 2021. Nice to be with you. Uh, It will hopefully be nice to be a Washington football team fan come this Sunday. Washington at the Atlanta Falcons, who have been one of the worst teams in the NFL so far this season. Although the Falcons are one and two. Uh, just like Washington, you know? That's something that we always have to remind ourselves as Washington fans when we consider an upcoming opponent to be a bad team. That opponent, more often than not, looks at Washington as a bad team. You know, the Falcons right now are like, hmm, okay, our schedule is softening here with this home game this Sunday against this team that doesn't have a name. Uh, Anyway, uh, I have some thoughts on this game coming up in a bit, as well as some harsh statistical realities for four of the most prominent players on Washington's uh, oh-so-disappointing defense. I tell you, this game at the Falcons needs to be a get-right game for this Washington football team defense. And one of the more painful aspects of the defensive struggles through three games is that the big money-slash-big-stature guys aren't producing. You know, it'd be one thing if those guys were delivering and it was just some Others, you know, people who aren't that good, they're the ones who are the real problems. It's not really the case here. You have across-the-board issues with this Washington defense, but you also have this phenomenon of the big money slash big stature guys not delivering like those guys are supposed to be delivering. But before that conversation, I have a special guest for you. Former Washington tight end, Logan Paulson. Uh, Logan came on the podcast back in May. He is terrific when it comes to talking X's and O's, watches a lot of tape, uh, has been putting on his Instagram some great breakdowns. You can follow Logan on the gram, uh, Logan underscore Paulson 82. But you're going to hear Logan's takes on Washington's defense, including whether Jack Del Rio's defense is too complicated. Uh, You're going to hear Logan's takes on Taylor Heineke, including whether Heineke being a legitimate NFL starting quarterback is realistic. I like to bring on this podcast as guests the truly high-level thinkers when it comes to 
the Washington football team and the NFL. Uh, had Mark Bullock on the pod last week. Looking forward to bringing you Logan Paulson on this installment of the pod. He's coming up next segment. Also on the show, Patrick Corbin. Has the glitch been fixed? As uh, one of the two Bobs in the classic movie Office Space said, we fixed the glitch. We fixed the glitch. Yeah, we, we fixed the glitch. Uh, probably a bit too aggressive to say that the Patrick Corbin glitch has been permanently fixed. But what you can say is that Patrick Corbin was good again on Tuesday night. A 3-1 loss at the Colorado Rockies. Corbin was good for a fourth time in five starts. He has had a horrendous 2021 season, but he is in the process of ending that season in a good way. Uh, I will talk Orioles late in the show. They won on Tuesday night, 4-2 win over the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Another big homer for Ryan Mountcastle. And we had the return of Bruce Zimmerman, who made his first major league appearance in more than three and a half months. He was the Orioles starting pitcher and all things considered, did a pretty nice job. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Jeffrey Southworth on the Washington football team, writes Jeffrey, I am just now able to sit after that butt whipping at the hand of the Bills. I am convinced that Ron and company are out of touch with today's league, and this in Ron We Trust experiment is probably not going to work. At his Monday presser, he said he wants Taylor Heineke to be a game manager. A game manager? The kid Heineke is a gamer. That is what you like about him. Let him compete using the intangibles that are going to lead to his success if he is to have any. Ron is stuck in the 80s. In today's league, a 21-0 hole is not insurmountable. It is 2021. It is an offensive league, and we are rebuilding around a staff that has no proven offensive authority. Scott Turner, stop it. Further proof, they want Allen to be the guy. Run a quarterback sneak with your 200-pound quarterback after he gets smoked the play before. Uh, thank you for the email, Jeffrey. So I addressed the whole game manager thing on Tuesday's show, episode 154. I don't think that Ron Rivera on Monday, when he said that he wants Taylor Heineke to, quote, do things in more of a game manager way, end quote, meant that he wants Heineke to become, you know, this check down Charlie who stops trying to make plays. My sense was that Ron wants Heineke to just be a little smarter. And by the way, Heineke, for the most part, has been smart with his decision-making. But I thought that people overreacted to the whole game manager thing, in large part because that phrase, game manager, carries such a negative connotation, whether the phrase should or not. Uh, you're right in saying that Scott Turner is a largely unproven offensive coordinator, but others on the offensive staff are not. And I think it's important to remember this. Uh, the offensive line coach, John Matsko, very good reputation. Uh, the tight ends coach, Pete Hayner, very good reputation. Those guys have coached a lot of good players over the last, say, 20 years. You know, To paraphrase Dan Snyder, you can Google that. That's very, very hard to do. You should Google that. Yes, Danny, that is hard to do, and you should Google that. Uh, and then on the failed quarterback sneak, uh, yeah, that did not work. Uh, Washington and that 43-21 uh, loss at the Buffalo Bills this past Sunday afternoon had that fourth quarter turnover on downs. Heineke got stuffed for a one-yard loss on a fourth and one under center quarterback sneak run. But generally speaking, 
the quarterback sneak is a high percentage play. I never crush a team for going with a quarterback sneak. Consider this from Pro Football Focus, and this research is a bit dated now, but it makes a point. From 2007 through 2017, when in between the 20-yard lines on a third or fourth down with only one yard to go to get a first down, NFL teams converted 86.5% of the time on quarterback sneaks, but only 68.7% of the time on running back carries. How about that discrepancy? 86.5% conversion rate on quarterback sneaks, 68.7% conversion rate on running back carries. Again, you can Google that. That's very, very hard to do. You should Google that. Yes, Danny. Thank you. Uh, Email from Thelonious Funk on the Washington football team. Off, yes, the loss at the Buffalo Bills. Don't fake the funk, uh, writes Thelonious. D-Knox did not push off. Holcomb was stumbling and out of position from the jump. Dare I say, Chase Young and Montez Sweat are the new Kerrigan and Arakpo. A lot of hype with little production. Young ran himself out of at least three sacks versus Buffalo. Sweat was nowhere to be found after the first drive. When will Washington get an OC who can evaluate and grow with a young quarterback like Buffalo? If we're modeled after Buffalo, why not commit to a guy we can develop? Uh, Yeah, Dawson Knox did push off of Cole Holcomb on Knox's touchdown catch, which came on a third and seven, uh, by the way. But go back and watch the play. Second quarter, Holcomb immediately after the touchdown makes the motion with his arm saying that he had been pushed off of. And if you watch the replay, you see Knox push off of Cole Holcomb. You know, that's not to totally absolve Holcomb of giving up the touchdown pass, but I think that is a key thing to keep in mind about that play. Uh, Chase Young and Montez Sweat better not be Ryan Kerrigan and Brian Arakpo. Uh, Chase Young and Montez Sweat are here to be Dexter Manley and Charles Mann, not Ryan Kerrigan and Brian Arakpo. And I say that fully acknowledging Ryan Kerrigan especially is one of the best defensive players in Washington history. But the Kerrigan-Arakpo edge rusher duo was never quite what we wanted it to be. Uh, Dexter and Charles are the edge rusher duo standard by which every edge rusher duo for Washington is judged. And that's what you want Chase Young and Montez Sweat to end up being. That's what Chase Young and Montez Sweat have the ability to be, but they need to be it. And they have not been it so far this season. And when it comes to committing to a quarterback who Washington can develop, yeah, I mean, I'm all for that. I think Washington is all for that too. But you have to find a guy who you believe is worthy of developing. And Washington this past offseason did not believe that any of the guys who were realistically available to Washington were worth developing. Now, we'll see if Washington is proven right on that. Because realistically, Washington probably could have traded up in the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft to take Justin Fields or Mac Jones. But Washington obviously did not do that. Uh, now, neither Fields nor Jones look good at all uh, this past Sunday. The Justin Fields stat line really is an all-timer. Uh, Chicago Bears losing at the Cleveland Browns 26-6. Fields in that game, 6 of 20 for 68 yards. No touchdowns, no picks. Was sacked nine times. The Bears finished the game with one net yard passing. One. 
Now, that may well be far more an indictment of the Bears head coach, Matt Nagy, as opposed to an indictment of Justin Fields, but that was one of the worst statistical performances that you'll ever see from a quarterback. I mean, one net yard passing the entire game. That's incredible. What's also incredible is paying 6% commission or more to a real estate agent. If you're selling your home, don't do that. Instead, contact John Grandland of Real Broker because he offers commission flex. Position flex. Yes, just like Ron Rivera's favorite thing that he references all of the time, position flex, John Grandlin offers commission flex. What is commission flex, you ask? It's simple, flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, why should you have to pay 6%? The days of some flat commission rate, regardless of how easy it is to sell your home, are over. John Grandlin will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. Zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there's never any obligation to list or sell. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. This is a phone call that could make and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. You have nothing to lose. Call John G. now. The phone number, 703-537-6747. When you talk to John Grandlin, make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure that you ask John G. about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. That phone number again is 703-537-6747. John's a great guy, easygoing. You're not obligated to anything. Call him up and just see what he can do for you. You can also visit johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandland, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the master of commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, just like position flex. All right, very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now a special guest to talk about our one and two Washington football team, former Washington tight end Logan Paulson. He was with Washington from 2010 through 2015, then played for the Chicago Bears in 2016, the San Francisco 49ers in 2017, and the Atlanta Falcons in 2018, and he was with the Houston Texans in 2019. Logan Paulson, an undrafted free agent at UCLA, and yet ended up being in the NFL for 10 seasons. And Logan is great at breaking down X's and O's. You can watch his breakdowns on his Instagram, which is Logan underscore Paulson 82. Logan, it's great to have you on again, man. How are you? I'm good, man. You doing all right? Doing well. Doing well. Excited to talk some football with you. Uh, So you watch football in a very sophisticated way. Obviously, there has been a ton of talk about this Washington defense. What do you make of the defensive struggles? So I think it's it's complicated. It's multifactorial. So I think everyone wants to kind of assign blame to a specific uh, position group. But I think good defense is uh, 
kind of have like a synergistic quality. You know, they, they have to all phases kind of complement each other. So if the rush isn't getting home, um, that affects the path, that affects the, the coverage. And if the coverage isn't doing its job, that affects the rush, you know? And I think when I watch the tape more specifically with this group, I think they just don't understand, you know, and again, coverages are really hard to break down because there's so many variations and every team runs them a little different and there's variations, but you know, based on offensive looks, However, I do think that they don't fully understand like what concepts um, hurt the coverages that they're in, they, and they have a hard time matching concepts. And um, that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time on task to get really proficient at that. And I think that you know, there's a whole bunch of new pieces to this group. Obviously, Jamin Davis, um, St. Juiced, Bobby McCain, William, um, Williams the third on the outside, and then you know, Collins missing most of last year. So getting all those pieces to kind of work together effectively I think is important because you know when they play man coverage um, they actually look like a bunch of good athletes who know what they're doing and I think that speaks to kind of the level of athlete that they have it's just about getting all those guys to play together um, and, and work in a more more cohesive manner do you think the defense is too complicated you know I don't I think I think it's you got to play complicated defense in the NFL I think you know the cover three system that um, Seattle used to run there or that was popularized by Seattle is kind of gone by the wayside because people in the NFL like they have a lot of time to study film and they have a lot of time to think about beating defenses and you need to have some wrinkles in there and I think um, I think maybe situationally the this defense is becoming a little bit too um, specific right like they have a tendency in third and short to play man coverage third and long to play quarters and so I think that makes it easier for offensive opposing offensive coordinators to maybe game plan or get the right play called in those situations, but I, I don't think it's too complicated. I think they kind of rely. They, they run a lot. They run a little bit of quarters. They run cover three. They run a little bit of cover two, and they run man-to-man coverage. And most defenses in the NFL are in that same ballpark. I think maybe the one thing you'd like to see potentially is them disguise what they do a little bit better pre-snap, just to kind of help promote some consternation from the route runners and from the quarterback, from the opposing quarterback. But again, that's, you know, I'm not in the room every day with those guys. I don't know what they're trying to get done. Uh, I just, knowing like having been around some good defenses in my time, like knowing that good defenses can do that at a high level, um, I'd like to see them do some more of that. So I don't know how much of these Ron Rivera press conferences you consume, but he keeps talking about guys not playing the defense as it needs to be played. Guys not just doing their jobs, guys trying to do too much. Is that just cliche coach talk, or is that, in fact, part of what's happening? No, I think you go through the tape and you see guys, um, yeah, like not playing, not, not, not being where they're supposed to be in, in, the, in an effort to make a play, you know? So you hate to, like, fault a guy for doing that. But, the, you know, a really easy one that a lot of fans are going to be familiar with is, like, the Daniel Jones run um, on third short in the Giants game, right? Landon Collins is trying to make a play. He's trying to, you know, get a tackle for loss um, in a critical situation. He turns his shoulders. He closes on the running back. And Daniel Jones keeps the ball. Like, he's not being the contained player in that look, you know. And I think um, I'm not criticizing Collins for making a play. But, like, when people play out of scheme and try to do too much, it affects everybody else in the defense, right? And so, like, you know, Kyle Shannon, for example, when he's calling a run, his goal is to get one person to not do their job, right, and have a big run. And so when you watch this, it's the same thing for coverage. Like, there was a couple plays in the Buffalo game where I thought, I don't know exactly what coverage this is, but this doesn't look right. 
and it looks like this guy's trying to maybe press for an interception here, and he's kind of hanging his buddy out to dry. And I think that that kind of stuff is important to keep uh, is important to keep in mind when watching tape. But it's not always the guy who's who's getting bossed who's making the mistake. It might be somebody else. And then I think along the defensive line, I think that group just needs to um, you know kind of again like you see guys young guys trying to make plays that you know you don't need to make. There's so that 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 play that you're trying to make is someone else's play. So I definitely it is a little bit of coach speak, but you definitely see that on the film and. Um, you know, it, that is something that probably that for sure needs to get corrected moving forward. A particularly aggravating aspect of the defense has been in each of the three games, the opposing team on its first offensive drive marching right down the field for a touchdown. Is that phenomenon just simply a function of the defense overall struggling, or is there something specific about these first offensive drives for opposing teams that is giving Washington trouble? Well, I will say that those plays, those first 15 plays, are going to be the most heavily scripted, right? They're the ones that are going to be the most reps, the most kind of uh, the, the coordinator, the quarterback. They're going to have the most comfort with those plays. And as a result, um, and they've, been, they've, they've been selected from the install from the playbook specifically for this defense. So they are going to be the most challenging, right? They're going to put you got the, the defense in the most kind of consternation. They're going to be the easiest throws or the things that the quarterback and the running back and the offensive line feel the most comfortable with. So I think, yes, those first drives are always very challenging. But that being said, like if you look at the Buffalo game, I think the, the Washington football team on the first drive, the first two plays on the first drive, did what a defense is supposed to do. They got this vaunted Bills offense into a third-long situation and just couldn't, couldn't capitalize on a third-long. And those are the types of plays that need to be made by this defense, right? Like, they did a good job on first and second down. They got this this group out of, off schedule, off their, out of their first 15 or first 25, however the Buffalo Bills script their plays, and into a, into a very selected pass concept uh, variety, and they weren't able to capitalize. So I think that's probably the most frustrating. Obviously, like, when an offense is staying ahead of the sticks, you know, it's second and five, third and two, like those are situations where the offense is supposed to win and the defense is at a disadvantage. But when you get an, a good offense like the Bills or even a mediocre offense like the Giants in a third and plus situation, that's when this group needs to start capitalizing. And I think it might turn the tide, get some punts, get the offensive of uh, the Washington football team more touches on the football. Talking Washington football team with former Washington tight end Logan Paulson. Uh, you can watch his breakdowns on his Instagram, which is Logan underscore Paulson 82. So, Taylor Heineke, in week 16 of the 2018 season, Atlanta won at Carolina 24-10. Heineke was the Panthers' starting quarterback. That was his first career start. Uh, things did not go well for him. Uh, and you were on the Falcons at the time. What, yep. if anything, do you remember about that game? You know, I remember it's, it was such a stark contrast because, you know, you're so used to seeing Cam Newton line up at the quarterback position for the Carolina Panthers. And, like, Taylor Heineke is not Cam Newton. Like, you know, <laughs> kind, of a, kind of a small guy, diminutive guy. He's running around. He just looked unsettled, I remember thinking, and, and the Falcons defense, which was, at the time, kind of middle of the road, like really took it to him and really challenged him. I think he threw a couple of interceptions. He ended up getting hurt in that game. They had to bring in uh, Allen, I believe, <clears throat> and obviously, um, you know, like that was my first introduction to Taylor Heineke, and it's kind of crazy to see him, like, you know, be starting down for the Washington football team, so good for him, but. The idea that Heineke could be a legitimate starting quarterback in the NFL, is that preposterous to you or not necessarily? So it's not preposterous to me, but I do think fans need to take a step back and look at look at how he plays the game. Like 
every in the course of all of his starts, he's put the ball in harm's way, kind of like a turnover-worthy play. Um, I'd say at least four times, right? And those plays aren't always capitalized on by the defense. Like I think about the the Bucks game specifically, he did that. No interceptions. He does it against the Giants. There's one kind of disastrous turnover. Uh, but there was other opportunities for that for him to turn the ball over in that game. And then obviously you see kind of the fruition of that or that come to light completely against the Bills, right? And again, he's not playing bad football. It's just good quarterbacks. I think elite quarterbacks. One of the things that diff- one of the the variables that differentiates them from kind of average or backup quarterbacks is this idea that they know how to take care of the football and they know when to put the football in, in, in dangerous situations or they know when to kind of walk the razor's edge and how to walk it. And I think Taylor Heineke is still learning that. And I think the more he plays, the better you feel about him playing more, but also like you kind of see who he really is, right? You see that he's got some deficiencies in his game. You know, he is an experience. Like I think the Bills defense had him confused on a couple reps, which led to pressures and sacks and kind of errant throws. And those things, like, yes, it can be helped and developed through experience and study, which I've heard, you know, he's that kind of guy who's going to study and get ready. But, um, again, like, can he develop that uh, diagnostic ability and the ability to know how to protect the football? Those are all big questions. And, you know, everyone asks me this question, I always tell them, like, I need to see at least three starts where defenses have had time to prepare for you. Because NFL defenses are super good at forcing you into doing things you're not comfortable with. And I think we're going to get another good data point for him this week against Atlanta. So in your experience, a quarterback can learn to be better at taking care of the football, can learn to be better when it comes to not taking unnecessary risks? I mean, I think if you look at certain guys, yeah, certain guys like talk themselves out of it. You know, they, they, they cultivate a skill set. I think Peyton Manning is kind of the most iconic example. You know, he like broke the rookie record for interceptions and then over the course of his career obviously became very, very diligent with how he took care of the football. But again, there was a guy who was a first-round draft pick. They had a lot of draft equity invested in him, and he had time. He had time to learn that skill, and most guys do not have that luxury, especially a guy like Taylor Heineke. He does not have that luxury. So can he show like a pretty drastic turnaround in a short amount of time? I don't know. It'll be very challenging, but people have done it. Let's talk some tight ends. Uh, I want to get your take on the Logan Thomas fumble. So Logan Thomas certainly made plays in the loss at Buffalo, but he did have that loss fumble. And it was a function of him fighting for extra yardage on a big third down reception. As a tight end, how do you strike that balance of trying to generate yardage after the catch with ball security? Yeah, it's very challenging. I think, you know, I went through a period where I was trying to claw and fight and scratch for every single yard and it it negatively affected my ball security. And I had a coach come and tell me one time, like, the most important thing on the football field, the most important thing for your family uh, for my family in the context of football is taking care of the football and ensuring the possession. And so you kind of realize, yeah, like when that first guy's on you and you might be able to get free and break the tackle, great. But when more guys start coming to the party, they start holding you up, like there's nothing more important than that football. And I think, you know, Logan Thomas is relatively new to the position. You know, he's I think he's, you know, playing, he played his way into like a top 12, top 10 kind of tight end of the NFL, which is fantastic for a guy with such limited experience. But some of these things you're still learning. And, you know, he's going against his old team, his former team, the Buffalo Bills. I'm sure he wants to, to make a demonstrative performance. And, you know, when you're a big guy, it's easy to kind of get carried away with a rumble and bubble and stumble and you don't realize that you've kind of put the ball at risk. So I think, again, that's something that I'm sure he'll learn from and get better at. And, um, you know, like you said, he did make some pretty spectacular plays in that game. And, you know, he's kind of making that a habit. So hopefully... Um, you know, he's been all, kind of a bright spot for the offense over the last couple of weeks. 
You mentioned Logan still being relatively new to the tight end position. I don't know that anyone in the NFL is newer to any position than Samus Reyes. Uh, I know that you know Samus and have worked with him a little bit here. He's been inactive so far this season. Do you think it's realistic that at some point in the season, Samus becomes active and becomes a part of the Washington in-game tight end rotation? Or do you think this is more a developmental year and the idea is for him to not be active, assuming that you have health at the tight end position? Yeah, I think the idea would be you want to, I think you want to get him on the field in some capacity at some point this year. So whether that's week 10 or whether that's week five, it really depends on how Sam East is looking at practice. I think, you know, a good avenue for him to get on the field might be special teams. If you felt like you could trust him there, special team, like, you know, punt, punt, return, maybe a kickoff return type role, you know, three core special teams, and maybe you could get him in there. And then if he's playing well on special teams, then you could maybe justify putting in some plays where he could he could get in, you know, maybe your thirteen personnel, your you know, like that's your three tight end and one running back personnel groupings, just to get him some in game experience. But to me, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of Sam East, but I think he's still a little bit of got a little bit of green around the ears and needs to do some growing still and needs to do some maturing. I think he has all the potential in the world, which is well documented, but I think he's got a little bit of time yet. So I you know, even if he does play, don't expect him to have a tremendously significant role, um, at least or, at least this season, I would think. There's so much for a guy like Samus Reyes to have to take in. What to you is the number one thing that Samus Reyes has to learn? I mean, the story really is incredible when you think about it. He had never played football at any meaningful level until coming to the NFL and playing for Washington this past preseason. Yeah. What to you is that number one thing that Samus Reyes needs to grasp? Usually is just kind of like outside of like the major stuff, like, you know, obviously the playbook being one is just understanding how the game moves. And I know that sounds kind of like an abstract concept, but like, you know, when you're blocking a defensive lineman, like knowing how he's going to move based on the position that he is in relation to you, right? Or how a a coverage is going to work, how a linebacker plays man coverage, like, because it's much different than any other sport in that regard, right? Soccer, football, basketball, rugby, all these different sports. And it makes it really hard to transition because the game has a certain feel, a certain velocity, a certain timing to it that not other sports have. And, you know, from talking with him, like, that's one thing that he's mentioned to me is it just moves different than any other sport that you're familiar with. Like, you run a play, you come back in the huddle, you kind of reset, you do it again. Like, that's a very unusual kind of styling of play and structure of the game. And so, you know, in addition to the obvious things like the plays and footwork and all those technical things, like just getting familiar with kind of the constitution of the game and how that plays out. Final question. Uh, what do you think about Washington's offensive line so far this season? So I've actually been pleasantly surprised, especially considering they're starting a rookie or a right tackle. I was a big fan of Cosme, um, you know, after talking with all my buddies in the NFL, line coaches and scouts and stuff, and after watching him on my own. And so it's been cool to see him kind of living up to the potential that I thought he had. Um, you know, obviously, Sheriff, Roulier, um, Flowers has been a very pleasant surprise. I haven't seen him play a whole bunch. You know, I didn't watch him in Miami. And I didn't watch the team a ton when he was here before, but he's looked great. Leno, I think, is kind of uh, you know middle of the road left tackle, but he's feeling good. Nice. You know, I think the group is starting to gel. Well, I think um, you know obviously some people might point to like the run game and say, oh, they've been a little bit lackluster there, but um, I think they this team runs a very kind of challenging run scheme. They demand that you have to physically move people quite a bit, which is which is a tough task in the NFL. But I think overall, I think the fans, you know, like C plus, B minus kind of grade. And for a group that's just kind of coming together, I think that's pretty good. 
All right. Former Washington tight end Logan Paulson. You can watch his breakdowns on his Instagram, which is Logan underscore Paulson 82. Logan, really enjoy talking Washington football team with you, man. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, man. Really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Good to get Logan Paulson's perspective on the Washington football team. A high-level X's and O's perspective. Not at all common. And speaking of common, did you know that skin cancer is the most common of all cancers. In fact, skin cancer accounts for nearly half of all cancer cases in the United States. If you have concerns about your skin, if you are dealing with skin cancer, if you have had skin cancer and haven't seen a doctor in a while, always know that Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland are there for you. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Washington football team fan, big listener of this podcast, and operating under the direction of Dr. Verghese is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. Dr. Verghese and his team offer state-of-the-art treatments for skin cancer, including something that's a game-changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options SRT is an option, and Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401. 3401 or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, so the 1-2 and two Washington football team on Wednesday is beginning its practice week for Sunday afternoon's game at the 1-2 and two Atlanta Falcons at 1. Falcons are coming off a win, 17-14, at the New York Giants this past Sunday afternoon. Falcons won on a walk-off 40-yard field goal by Youngway Koo, who, by the way, has been maybe the best kicker in the NFL over the last three seasons. This is his third season as the Falcons kicker, Youngway Koo, since the start of the 2019 season, is 64 of 69 on field goals in the regular season. Not bad. Uh, But the Falcons are not a good team. Uh, Falcons through week three are dead last in the NFL in total offense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric. Falcons through week three are 30th out of 32 NFL teams in total defense per DVOA. That is a lethal combo. Dead last in total offense, 30th out of the 32 NFL teams in total defense. Falcons are a bad team. Uh, If our team, the Washington football team, is anything close to a good team, Washington will win this game at the Falcons on Sunday. But here's the thing. Our team is a bad team, at least so far this season. Washington through week three is 20th in the NFL in total offense per DVOA and 29th in the NFL in total defense 
for DVOA. So this will be quite the matchup on Sunday. Washington's terrible defense against the Falcons' terrible offense and Washington's so-so offense versus the Falcons' terrible defense. Washington really needs to win this game. I'm not going to do the thing of, oh, this is a must-win game, okay? I hate that talk this early in the season. I'm not going to call this game a code red game. That's critical. It's uh, code red for us. No, no. Sorry, Jay. Uh, This is not a code red game. I don't know. Should I call this game a measuring stick game? Uh, Probably not. Uh, The last time that Washington had a game called a measuring stick game, uh, things did not go so well. Uh, But understand this. After this game at the Falcons, Washington's schedule stiffens drastically. ESPN NFL prognosticator Mike Clay does a lot with analytics and projections. Clay has ranked each NFL team's strength of schedule for the rest of the regular season based on his current evaluation of each team. Clay has Washington as having the second hardest schedule the rest of the season. Yeah, the Giants have the hardest schedule the rest of the season, and Washington has the second hardest schedule the rest of the season. So Washington, even with this game at the Lowly Falcons, has the second hardest schedule the rest of the season, according to Mike Clay. Now, that's how things are right now. As we know, things change quickly in the NFL. A schedule that looks daunting in late September can look very different come late October. But all you can go by is what is currently the case. And what is currently the case is that Washington has one of the hardest schedules in the NFL. And so that adds even more urgency to Washington's defense needing to be better. And while, yes, the defensive struggles are on a number of people, the big boys have got to start delivering more. I mean, how about this? I was looking at this on Tuesday. Chase Young, for pro football focus so far this season, has a pressure percentage of just 9.2%, ranking just 71st among all qualified edge rushers in the NFL. Montez Sweat, for pro football focus so far this season, has a pressure percentage of 9.3%, ranking just 69th among all qualified edge rushers in the NFL. The two guys who were supposed to threaten the NFL's all-time single-season record for combined sacks by two teammates in a regular season, those two guys rank 69th and 71st among all qualified edge rushers in the NFL in pressure percentage. For Pro Football Focus. We talk about all the time about breaking records and stuff like that. I personally wanted to go get the the combined sack record that the uh, the guys got back before. So, yeah, we talk about it all the time. Yes, Montez, thank you. We got you on that. Uh, evaluating defensive players in the NFL is tricky. You can't just go by what your eyes tell you. It's important to look at the right stats. And what the right stats are telling us is that, yes, Uh, Our eyes are not deceiving us. The likes of Chase Young and Montez Sweat haven't been very effective. How about Washington's top two corners? Do you know what William Jackson III's overall grade for pro football focus is so far this season? PFF grades are on a scale of 0 to 100. Do you know what old WJ3's overall grade for PFF is so far this season? 49.7. That is terrible. Kendall Fuller's overall grade for pro football focus so far this season is 65.0. That's not that good. Chase Young, Montez Sweat, 
William Jackson III, Kendall Fuller. These guys are supposed to be better than this. I do think that these guys are better than this. I don't think that all of a sudden, all four of these guys are just terrible, but we need to see these guys start playing better than what we have seen so far. And that needs to start this Sunday at the Falcons. Has Patrick Corbin been fixed? Another good outing on Tuesday night. I'm talking Nationals after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So I have to tell you, I was not very optimistic regarding Patrick Corbin at Coors Field on Tuesday night. How could you have been optimistic regarding Patrick Corbin at Coors Field on Tuesday night? Coors Field is where pitchers go to get shellacked. Uh, Coors Field in the altitude of Denver, in the mile-high air of Denver, is the most notorious hitter's park in maybe the history of baseball. But Patrick Corbin did quite well on Tuesday night. Now, the Nationals did lose at the Colorado Rockies 3-1 in Game 2 of a three-game series, which is the Nats' final road series of the season. As, yes, we did have a 3-1 final in a game at Coors Field. That's now 65-93 and on the season. But what mattered far more than the outcome of the game was that Patrick Corbin pitched well in the game. Corbin was good for a fourth time in five outings, and that's no small feat given how awful his 2021 season has been. So Corbin in this 3-1 loss at the Rockies on Tuesday night, two runs in six innings. He had nine strikeouts versus three walks, one of which was intentional. He gave up six hits, a homer, two doubles, though one of the doubles was not his fault at all, uh, and three singles. He threw strikes, 64 strikes versus 37 balls on 101 pitches. And Corbin had a hit. Uh, He in the top of the third had a leadoff single. Uh, Corbin had the slider working. This was very reminiscent of 2019. Patrick Corbin, he began his outing with three scoreless innings. Corbin in a scoreless bottom of the first recorded three strikeouts. Uh, He did give up a two-out double to Trevor Story, but that was a result of a high fly ball that landed between Alcides Escobar and Yadiel Hernandez in left field as Escobar lost the ball in the air and Yadiel appeared to lose the ball in the air as well. Corbin gave up a run in the bottom of the fourth on a one-out five-pitch walk of C.J. Crone, then a one-out first-pitch single by Elias Diaz to right field, and then a one-out first-pitch RBI double by Ryan McMahon to left center field. Corbin gave up a run in the bottom of the fifth on a two-out solo homer by Trevor 
story. And this was a bomb. Uh, this was some home run. A shot to left center field. The home run when it projected 475 feet for StatCast. And the home run was the 37th home run allowed by Corbin this season, extending his franchise record for most home runs allowed in a season. So that was a bad moment, but that also was just a solo home run. And Corbin, right before that home run, made a really nice defensive play, made a terrific over-the-shoulder catch of a Brendan Rodgers chopper, and then delivered a nice throw to Ryan Zimmerman at first base for the putout. So Corbin was getting the job done in all kinds of ways on Tuesday night, pitching, fielding, batting, and he ended up having, like I said, a fourth good outing in five starts. You know, one of the things about Patrick Corbin's oh-so-bad 2021 season has been that he has had some good starts intermixed with the very bad starts. And so I never was willing to like go all in on, okay, Patrick Corbin is better now because we had seen some good starts and then those good starts would inevitably be followed by really bad starts. But what you've had here is a nice chunk of time in which Corbin has pieced together multiple good starts. Again, four good starts over the last five outings. Uh, Corbin in a 4-3 win over the New York Mets at Nationals Park on September 6th, three runs in seven innings. Corbin in a 6-2 win at the Pittsburgh Pirates on September 12th, two runs in seven innings. Corbin did get rocked in a 6-0 loss to the Colorado Rockies at Nationals Park on September 18th, six runs in four innings. But Corbin in a 3-2 win at the Cincinnati Reds last Thursday night, six and two-thirds scoreless innings with seven strikeouts. And then Corbin in this 3-1 loss at the Rockies on Tuesday night, two runs in six innings, nine strikeouts. Much better. Again, 2019 Corbin. That is what has been on display for the most part in this month of September. Uh, The ERA is down to 582, which tells you a lot about his season. Uh, That is the worst ERA among qualified pitchers in the majors, but he has made 31 starts this season. It's quite possible that he has made his final start of the season. Uh, The Nationals have not yet announced their starting pitchers for the Nats' final series of the season, a three-game set against the Boston Red Sox at Nationals Park Friday through Sunday. Personally, I don't think it would be bad at all to call it a year here for Patrick Corbin. It's been a nightmare of a season. He's ending it on a relative high note. Uh, Let's get out while the getting's still good here. Uh, But yeah, I mean, at least you can say with Patrick Corbin, all right, it's not maybe a total lost cause because for so much of this season, Patrick Corbin has felt like a total lost cause. So has the Patrick Corbin glitch been fixed? We fixed the glitch. Yeah, we fixed the glitch. Uh, Has the Patrick Corbin glitch been fixed? I don't think we can say that with complete certainty just yet, but I do think that it's possible. And good job, Patrick Corbin, putting together now four good starts over your last five outings. Because Patrick Corbin pitched so well on Tuesday night, David Martinez only had to use two relievers. Uh, The results were mixed. John Romero allowed a run in the bottom of the seventh inning on a leadoff full count triple by Rymel Tapia off the base of the right center field wall and a one-out RBI double by Brendan Rodgers over the head of Juan Soto in right field on an 0-2 pitch for a 3-1 Rockies lead. Uh, Patrick Murphy tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth despite issuing a two-out six-pitch walk of Jonathan Daza and then giving up a two-out first-pitch double by Sam Hilliard. But Murphy did then strike out Tapia on three pitches uh, for the third out. As for the Nats' offense in this 3-1 loss at the Rockies on Tuesday night, uh, not much happening. Again, this was a 3-1 game at Coors Field. Who'd have thunk it? But uh, Nats scoring just the one run, had just seven hits, did draw five walks, though none of the walks came 
from Juan Soto. Uh, Soto in this game went 0 for 4 with a strikeout. Did not get on base once. First time that Soto does not get on base in a game since September 13th, more than two weeks ago. Uh, So that snaps a 13-game on base streak for Juan Soto. And that's when 0 for 9 with runners in scoring position in the game. That scored their lone run on a bases-loaded walk by Lane Thomas, who went 0 for 3 uh, with that walk. Thomas in a Nats 1-run 7th, throwing a 2-out bases-loaded walk to cut the Nats deficit to 2-1, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. Your Lane Thomas on-base percentage over his now 186 Major League Plate appearances with the Nats at 376. We did have an impressive night for Ryan Zimmerman, who on his 37th birthday was the Nats starting first baseman at number four batter. Zim went two for four with a double and an infield single. Zimmerman in the top of the fourth had a leadoff double off the left center field wall. Zimmerman in the top of the eighth had a one-out infield single on an 0-2 pitch grounder to Rockies third baseman Ryan McMahon. So yeah, the old man, Ryan Zimmerman, legging out an infield single in this game. Uh, We don't know if these games are the final games of Ryan Zimmerman's major league career. He continues to say that he's undecided. Uh, The Nationals only have four games left in their season. The final three games are those three games against the Boston Red Sox at Nationals Park this weekend. Obviously, if this is going to be it for Ryan Zimmerman, you want to see as much of him as possible the rest of the way. But he seemingly has not made up his mind. And I don't know that he's going to make up his mind until the offseason, maybe even until we're deep into the offseason. I think a big part of this may well be whether there's a universal DH for 2022, because if there is, I think that makes Ryan Zimmerman being back on the Nationals much more palatable. I think it's possible even if there isn't a universal DH that the Nats have Zimmerman back. I mean, he's only playing under the terms of a one-year, $1 million contract this season. So to have him back next season on, say, a one-year, $1 million deal isn't that big of a deal, right? I mean, that's not a lot of money in today's day and age in Major League Baseball. And Zimmerman can still play. I mean, the overall numbers aren't great, but he is far from, like, embarrassing himself as this season goes on. And while he is certainly not an everyday player anymore— The body has held up this season with the way that the Nats have used him. The Nationals have been very smart in how they have used Ryan Zimmerman this year. And Zimmerman, you know, on the whole, you have to say, has been pretty good. He's looked good defensively. He's slugging 474 on the year. I mean, what bothers you is the on-base percentage, which isn't good, 283. But the guy can still hit. He can still make really solid contact. You saw that on that double on Tuesday night. And so if he wants to play and he wants to come back under the terms of a one-year, $1 million contract, and there is, in fact, a DH in the National League for next season, I don't think there's really an issue here with Zimmerman being back on the Nats, even with the Nats hopefully going younger and having more guys with positional versatility for next season. That is the thing with Zimmerman. He really can only play first base. So like he's an older guy, can only play that one position, can't play every day because of the injury history. There are a lot of limiting factors with Ryan Zimmerman at this point. I totally get that. Uh, But he can still hit. And if you have that universal DH, I think there very much is a spot for one of the greatest players in the history of the franchise, right? Uh, In Ryan Zimmerman. Uh, Yadiel Hernandez got on base three times on Tuesday night for the Nats. He went one for two with a single and a couple of walks. Uh, Yadiel in the Nats one run seventh had a one out first pitch single into right field. Alcides Escobar got on base twice on Tuesday night. One for three with a double and a walk. Uh, Alcides top of the first, a one out opposite field double 
to the right center field gap. And you had some good two-strike hitting from some young nationals on Tuesday night. K-Bert Ruiz went one for four with a single, the single coming in the top of the second, an opposite field leadoff single to right center field on a one-two pitch. And Carter Keboom, who overall continues to be underwhelming offensively, did have a nice hit on Tuesday night. One for four with a single, his single coming in the Nats. One run seventh, a one out opposite field single into right center field on an 0-2 pitch. Game three for the Nats at the Rockies, Wednesday afternoon at 3-10. Paolo Espino will make his final start of the season for the Nats. The final home series of the season for the Orioles began on Tuesday night, and the result was a win, a 4-2 win over the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in game one of a three-game series. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe Angel. Uh, O's now are 51 and 106 on the season. The Arizona Diamondbacks late night on Tuesday night did fall to a major league worst 50 and 107 on the season, a 6-4 loss at the major league leading San Francisco Giants. So the Orioles continue to be in a dogfight with the D-backs. Which team is going to get that number one pick in the 2022 MLB draft? But another home run for Ryan Mountcastle. Uh, He went one for four with three strikeouts, but the one was a one-out first pitch, two-run homer on a bomb to left field in the Orioles' three-run six. The homer going a projected 414 feet per stat cast. And the homer was Mountcastle's 32nd home run of the season. So the Ryan Mountcastle candidacy for American League Rookie of the Year continued. We also had the return of Bruce Zimmerman. Who? What? Yeah, Bruce Zimmerman. Uh, He made his first appearance in a Major League game since June 13th. So Bruce Zimmerman began this season as the number three starter in the Orioles rotation. He, in 59 and two-thirds innings over 12 games, including 11 starts, had an ERA of 483 and a whip of 148. The O's on June 18th in a flurry of roster moves placed Zimmerman, who was supposed to have started that night on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to June 15th with left biceps tendonitis. Then Zimmerman sprained his right ankle in a weight room accident following five scoreless and hitless innings in a rehab outing for AAA Norfolk on August 10th. The O's on August 15th transferred Zimmerman to the 60-day injured list, but the O's on Tuesday reinstated Zimmerman from the 60-day IL. He was the Orioles' starting pitcher in this 4-2 win over the Red Sox at Camden Yards on Tuesday night, and Zimmerman did well. I mean, all things considered, one run in four innings, so he only goes for four innings, but uh, he gave up actually a one-out first-pitch solo homer to the ex-nat Kyle Schwarber in the top of the second inning. But good to see Bruce Zimmerman back out there. Uh, I have no idea if he's a true piece for the future. This is only his age 26 season, so in theory, there is time for him to develop here. Uh, The O's got Zimmerman from the Atlanta Braves in the July 2018 trade that sent Kevin Gaussman and Darren O'Day to the Braves. Some other Orioles news from Tuesday. Anthony Santander's season is over. The O's on Tuesday placing Santander on the 10-day injured list with a right knee sprain. So when we talk about, okay, the true pieces of the future for the Orioles in terms of guys currently at the major league level, the big three right now are Cedric Mullins, Ryan Mountcastle, and Austin Hayes. I was hoping that we could also include Anthony Santander on that list this season. I don't think that you can, although I think you might be able to in the future. So this season was only Santander's age 26 season. He did not have a great year. 438 plate appearances, 
batting average of just 241, on base percentage of just 286, slugging percentage of 433. He did have 18 home runs, but he drew just 23 walks. Now, Santander was banged up for a good portion of this season. Uh, He was on the 10-day injured list from April 21st to May 21st due to a sprained left ankle. You may recall Santander in his initial time off the 10-day IL was on fire. Anthony Santander is a very streaky batter. His first series back off the 10-day IL was a series in which the O's got swept in three games at the Nationals, May 21st through May 23rd. Santander in that series, six for 13 with a homer, two doubles, three singles, and a walk. Santander then was on the COVID-19 injured list from July 21st to July 30th. So, you know, I don't want to say a lost season for Santander, but certainly a difficult season physically for Santander. And the production just wasn't there. Like, he has not had the year that guys like Mullins, Mountcastle, and Hayes are having. Uh, Dan Duquette selected Santander in the Rule 5 draft in December 2016. Never forget, Danny Duquette loved himself some Rule 5 draft choices. And Santander was very productive for the Orioles last season, albeit in that shortened season. 165 plate appearances for Santander in the 2020 season. He had a 575 slugging percentage last season. And Santander over the previous two seasons, 2019 and 2020, over 653 and two-thirds innings in right field, totaled plus 13 defensive run saves. So you have some things with which to work when it comes to Anthony Santander. But like I said, this season, uh, not exactly the season that you were looking for from Santander. Game two for the Orioles against the Red Sox at Camden Yards, Wednesday night at 7.05. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Big show on Thursday. Episode 156 will feature plenty on the Washington football team off Wednesday's practice and post-practice press conferences as the practice week begins for this Sunday afternoon's game at the Atlanta Falcons. Better be a win for the W to the F to the T in the A to the T to the L. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. We fixed the glitch.